Alright, well, welcome. So, like, back, like my wife said, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here. So, good to see so many people here this morning. So, when I was uh, sliding around in my Toyota Echo driving here, I was like, my wife is going to be the only one in the audience today. <laughs> so, it's, this is really great to have more than her here. So, um, like I said, um, I'm Aaron. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. So, my friend Brandon, he's the other pastor here. So, he's a regular preacher here. So, but he and his wife are on vacation celebrating their 10th anniversary. So, Y'all are stuck with me this morning. So, anyway. so in early December, we started preaching through the book of Matthew. So we're just slowly but surely like working through that book and preaching through that book. And just so you know, the reason why we typically preach through books of the Bible is because we're primarily interested in having Scripture shape the life of our church. So one of the ways that we shoot towards that goal is having the bulk of our preaching be going through books of the Bible. So, so we're not rigid about that, but that's the reason why we do that. So anyway, big picture. Um, in today's passage, we're going to be talking about the authority of Jesus, because that's the main point of the passages that we're reading today in Matthew uh, chapters 8 and 9. So those passages will eventually be up on the screen, and you're welcome to follow along that way um, or on your phone if you have an app with that. Um, there's also some Bibles around the corner on the little shelf over there by the kids, um, the bags for the kids and everything over there. If you want to take that home with you, you totally can. Um, but the authority of Jesus is a big deal because um, in Matthew 5 through 7, which is often called the Sermon on the Mount, that got preached about a couple weeks ago when Brandon was uh, preaching about that. So in chapters 5 through 7, when Jesus is giving this, this sermon, so he spoke with authority and he talked with authority. But now in chapters 8 and 9, he's going to show his authority. And ultimately, the reason why this is important is because your response to his authority sets the course for your whole life. So to that end, uh, we're going to be looking at three ways in this passage that Jesus shows his authority, and we're going to be looking at three ways in this passage that people respond to his authority. So let's pray. So God, I'm really thankful that, like, um, man, you just... um, you bothered to communicate with us, and like you really had like this written down like in scripture, just to really so that we can see how you show your authority and how how people responded to you, and like I pray that like by your spirit you'll just really show us like about um, please give us like a picture of like how we're supposed to be responding to you, so and how you invite us to do that. So yeah, we trust you to like just uh, um, have that be good news to my heart, to our hearts, and like to give us open ears for that. We love you. Amen. All right, so let's start. So Matthew 8, chapters, or excuse me, chapter 8, of verse 23 through 9, 13. So Jesus had just got done preaching his Sermon on the Mount, which I just mentioned. So he was like, in that sermon, his big picture concept was he was juxtaposing the gospel versus religion. That was his big, that was his big idea right there. For more on that, you can listen to that sermon online from a couple weeks ago, which was really good. So afterwards, Jesus, Jesus then showed his authority through healing a few people, including Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was one of his disciples. It was really nice of him to heal his the mother-in-law and everything. My mother-in-law was in town yesterday uh, for my daughter's birthday. It's really nice of Jesus to do that. So then he gets in a boat with a few of his disciples, and we'll just pick it up here in verse 23. Then he got into the boat with his disciples, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. 
The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. So Jesus shows his authority, and here's their response. Verse 27. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Verse 28. When he arrived on the other side in the region of Gadarenes, which, like, Gadarenes, this is the proverbial other side of the tracks. There's just a lot of people who, were, who, weren't, um, who weren't Jewish who lived over there. So when he arrived on the other side of the region of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs, that's the scene, met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town, and reported all this, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. So again, Jesus shows his authority, and then here's people's response. Verse 34. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. So he's on the other side of the lake now, back in his hometown. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. And the reason why they thought that, and just so you know, the teachers of the law, those were the religious leaders of the Jewish people and everything. And the reason why they thought that was because um, only God is the one who can forgive sins. And now this guy is doing that? Verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And obviously, that's obviously a rhetorical question because clearly the answer is that it's easier to merely say that someone's sins are forgiven because you don't turn purple once your sins are forgiven. So how, do you, how can you prove that someone has the authority to do that? Verse 6, but Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And when he says Son of Man there, that's just his name for himself that he has. It's based on the Old Testament, long story short. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. And again, Jesus shows his authority, and then here's, his, here's the response, verse 8. When the crowd saw this, 
They were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. So there's a, there's a lot of great stuff that we can notice in this passage for sure, but as you can probably see, one of the unquestionable, overarching themes in this passage is the authority of Jesus. And in particular, the authority of Jesus is not just being talked about, it's being shown so like I said, Matthew, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Jesus was preaching and teaching with authority in his sermon that was like pitting uh, the, religion and the religion and the gospel against each other. But now he makes the transition to boldly and clearly showing his authority. He was only talking about it then, which is important, but now he's showing it just in 72-point font, extra bold. So in light of that, like, let's look at the three ways in this passage that he shows his authority. So in the three ways that he shows his authority in this passage are over nature, over the demonic, and over sin itself. So, so let's start with the way he shows, his, he shows his authority over nature. So he wakes up from his deep sleep on the boat. Everybody's freaking out, which is the best way to like, <laughs> like be woken up for sure. So he stands up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, which is, a fan, which is a really dramatic way of saying that he just told them to stop. And then it was completely calm. So think for a minute about every little thing that you see on your weather app, about everything you see in nature, when you look out your window at work, when you go for a walk with your kids, when you're just going on a run, like everything you see in nature. Like, Jesus has authority over all those things. Now, some of you might be thinking, yeah, I mean, that may be true, but I don't know if that totally makes sense, because if that is true, then I don't understand how blank. And truth be told, like, there are some parts of that are just, that are really mind-benders about how he has authority and he exercises his authority like over nature and just the implications of that. It really makes my mind bend if I think about that too much and everything. But one of the questions that's worth asking is, how understandable does God need to be for me to trust him and to trust how he exercises his authority? Like how understandable does God need to be for me to trust him and to trust how he exercises his authority? Like, I would contend that the Bible, the God of the Bible is largely understandable and is definitely fits in with the scope, in the scope of reason. But also, I think it's fair to say that, like, and some of us have expectations that are so insanely high when it comes to comprehensively understanding everything about God, you know, in terms of, like, all that kind of stuff, that, like, our expectations just aren't realistic, and I don't mean to make that sound like condescending or bombastic or anything like that, but like here's what I mean by that. So let's just pretend that like, you know, well, let's start with this. If God is as big and as complex as the Bible makes him out to be, then we're not sophisticated. What that means is that we're not sophisticated enough to like comprehensively understand everything about how and why he exercises his authority. So, for example, let's pretend that you have an 18-month-old kid. Okay, um, 
and you take your 18-month-old child to the doctor because you're going to get a shot for, have them get a shot for something, okay? Because that seems like an age where you get a shot for something, whatever. So, so when your 18-month-old child gets a shot, um, here's what's going to happen. If you haven't experienced that firsthand, okay? What happens is they're not going to like it. They're going to, like, cry unless they really have emotionally wired in a certain way, okay? They're going to cry. They're going to, like, make eye contact with you, and they're just going to be really confused, okay? And you are going to have to exercise your authority as a parent and hold them down so that, like, they can, like, get the sh- have them, like, get the shot, okay? And they're just going to be really confused about, like, why is my parent exercising his authority over me in an 18-month-old kind of way. <laughs> so, and like, but seriously, like, you're not going to be able to, un- to explain the medical complexities of shots to your 18-month-old so they can understand that this is for their ultimate good and because you're, this is happening because you love them. Like, that's just not going to happen. The only thing that you can realistically do is tell them, like, I love you, you're going to be okay, I'm here for you, you can trust me, and afterwards you just hold them. Like, that's just the process, you know? Because one of the overarching themes of Scripture is that there's a big difference between us and God to the extent that we're kind of like that 18-month-old when it comes to getting, when it comes to needing a shot. Because if God ever tried explaining the complexities of how and why he exercises, exercises his authority over nature or anything else, we would probably understand it about as well as that 18-month-old. And in the grand scheme of things, we don't capital N need to understand why and how God exercises his authority. But the thing is that we can trust him. In the same way, your 18-month-old doesn't capital N need to understand how and why you're exercising your authority with getting shots, but your 18-month-old can trust you. Like, so next, he shows his authority over the demonic. He shows his authority over the demonic. So some people call this spiritual warfare. You can call that whatever you want. Um, the name, the term of it isn't super important, but... Now, for a variety of reasons, when it comes to talking about, about demons, like some of us have objections and hang-ups about the existence of the demonic in the first place. Um, for me, just in my process, one of the things that I've, that's really helped me in my process in just like thinking about those hang-ups and objections myself has been, how many things that are real am I unable to observe with my five senses? How many things that are real am I unable to observe with my five senses? And there are limitations to this analogy, but even the invention of the microscope has helped us to understand that there are aspects of reality that we just can't naturally observe with our five senses. I mean, there are subatomic... I mean, I was an environmental science major in college. I mean, like, there were just... I mean, there are subatomic particles of subatomic particles of subatomic particles that we're pretty sure exist, but, like, like we just haven't invented the technology where we can actually, like, see them or observe them or document them. 
You know, kind of like how Ant-Man's girlfriend's mom was like infinitely for like 30 straight years, like, you know, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking in the quantum realm. And so have you, have you seen that in Netflix? It's a really good movie. It's very scientific. So like he just keeps shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And just like, because there's like, it just, like there's just things that we just can't observe, you know? Um, you know, but that's like just a made up movie, you know? But the principle is still, like, legit, where it's just, like, there are just realities that exist that, like, we just can't observe with technology or, like, with our senses. Like, is it possible that there are some parts of reality that we can't observe with our senses or with technology? Like, it's a good question to think about, because one of the grand overarching assumptions in the Bible is that there are limitations to, like, what we can perceive and observe, And the point in saying all this is that even when it comes to the spiritual realities that we can't observe with our senses or technology, Jesus has authority over all those things. So what's going on with these two guys? So they just approach Jesus, like it says that they're demon-possessed. So um, two categories that are really... Um, helpful for understanding this is that like in the Bible there are some examples of ordinary demonic and there are some examples of extraordinary demonic. So the ordinary stuff, like um, that's outside the scope of this passage. I don't want to make this sermon too long or anything like that. But so there's like, there's some examples like in scripture that are like ordinary demonic, just like ordinary stuff. But then there's like extraordinary demonic. That's an example of the two demon possessed men <laughs> who just like come up to Jesus. So that's what's going on in this passage. So when you see examples in Scripture of demonic stuff related to torment, physical injury, false miracles, or in this passage, possession, these are examples of extraordinary demonic, things in the spiritual realm that we can't see. So it's easy to look at this passage and be like, are you sure? Like, I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's extraordinary. I mean, you don't, it's extraordinary. You don't see it when you walk into high V. You know, it's just like, it's extraordinary. And, we, and as we see in this passage, Jesus shows his authority over the demonic in this situation. The demons aren't like, hey, let's tag team this guy. Like, no, it's like they immediately beg for mercy, and they're like, man, we got to get out of here. We need an exit plan now. So they know what, who they're up against. They know because they know that Jesus has authority over everything in the unseen spiritual realm. So think about, think about everything that you can imagine that exists, that you think exists in the spiritual realm. Like, Jesus has authority over all those things. Next, he shows his authority over sin itself. More specifically, he shows that he has the authority to forgive sins. So Jesus, Jesus came back from the other side of the lake Some men brought to him a paralyzed friend of theirs lying on a mat. Jesus sees their faith and says to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. But the religious leaders, they were not impressed, to say the least. So he says in verse 6, He wants them to know that he has authority to forgive sins. So he heals the guy. His authority over the, over the physical world is used to show his authority over sin. So think about some of the things that you have 
said or done or felt that you're really hesitant to share with anybody? Even the people that, you, that love you the most. Because there's tons of people out there who are just like, my life is an open book. Well, no. It's like everybody's got their stuff, okay? Like, think about, like, those kind of things that, like, you're just hesitant to share with anybody that you've, like, said and felt and done. The reason why we hide like that is because of our shame. Now, and the parts of your shame that are rooted in your own personal sin, and that is a whole nother sermon, because not everything, not all parts of our shame and the reason why we hide are because of our personal sin. That's another sermon. But the parts of our shame and the reasons why we hide that are rooted in our own personal sin, the enormous and vital first step in dealing with that is to come out of hiding to the one who has authority over sin. Because make no mistake about it, your sin is so bad that Jesus had to die but you are so loved that he was happy to die for you. And that's why we can trust him to like just come out of hiding, because he has authority. He's not only worthy to have authority to forgive sin, but he's trustworthy enough to exercise that authority. So those are three ways that we see Jesus showing his authority over this authority in this passage over nature, over the demonic like on over sin. But it's one thing to intellectually acknowledge his authority, the authority of Jesus, and it's, but it's quite another to just respond to his authority. And make no mistake about it, all of us are called to respond to his authority. In this passage, we see three different responses to his authority. And there's a, there's a big variety in like the, the responses in this passage. I just really loved studying this this week and just like just really marinating in that. But um, yeah, and like these variety of responses to his authority, that gives us a win. That's a window into like how we're to respond to him. So let's look at the first uh, response to his authority in this passage, which I would describe as half-baked curiosity. When I say half-baked, I don't mean the urban slang definition of that. I'm talking about the Merriam-Webster definition of that, which is incomplete and just not totally thought through. I listen to a podcast that's uh, it's called Half-Baked Ideas. They're just kind of incomplete, not totally thought through ideas. It's just some of them are kind of interesting. Okay, So, you know, and we see in this passage that, like, the curiosity of the disciples in the boat you know, when there's the wind and the waves, their response to him just like, uh, like just making everything all calm, like it is, it's just kind of incomplete. It's just not totally felt through, thought through. It's not a bad response. It's not. It's just kind of half baked, and the response probably just needs to go back in the oven and just get fully baked. And as we see in verse 27, like. The men in the boat um, were amazed, and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. I mean, they weren't bowing down to Jesus as their forgiver and their leader, and it's like, man, you're the king, and I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to follow you. Like, I'm on board. Um, no, I mean, they weren't praising God. Like, they were just like, well, that's cool. Who's this guy? 
Even the disciples who followed Jesus closely took a while to get fully baked in their response. And that's, you know, and that's where some of you are at this morning, and that's good. It's like you're genuinely curious about Jesus. And, I mean, I don't know if you need me to tell you this, but, like, you're on the right track. That's a good thing. Like, just stay being curious. Like, stay on that track. Like, that's good. That being said, um, just like the disciples in the boat, you got to know that there's more to following Jesus than just being curious and excited about him. Because ultimately, he's calling you not just to be excited and curious about him. He's calling you to repent and turn to him and like follow him as your forgiver and leader. So again, it's a, it's a good thing to be excited and curious about him. But you just remember, need to remember that you need to get back in the oven. Like, <laughs> he really does. Like, he's calling you to fully come under the authority of him. And just not in a half-hearted kind of way. And also, just side note, um, this is a good reminder for those of us who have friends who are in um, the curiosity, half-baked kind of stage, you know, of curiosity stage. Because even Jesus himself was extremely patient, and he allowed his disciples to be in process. That's a good thing. So don't get me wrong, like, he exhorted his disciples, like, he encouraged them, he called them to a life-changing faith in him. Like, even in this passage, we see that, like, he's like, you have little faith, like, why are you so afraid? It's like, like, he exhorted them, he encouraged them, he, like, he's calling them to a life-changing faith in him, you know, but he allowed his disciples to be in process. That's why we have a culture here at River City of allowing people to be in process, that's because like, we remember what it's like being in process. So the half-baked curiosity, that's the first response that we see into his authority in this passage. So let's look at the next response to his authority that we see in this passage, which I refer to as the shot block. So one thing I didn't talk about yet in this passage is the fiasco with the pigs. So the demons are clearly terrified by the authority of Jesus because they were like, we got to get out of here. Uh, send us into those pigs. Like, now, why exactly they wanted to take out the pigs and send them over the cliff in this passage? Like, the passage doesn't tell us why um, that happened. So that should give us a clue that, like, that's probably not the most important question to ask. But, I mean, that's fair. That being said, if I were to speculate, if I were to speculate, um, I would guess that the reason why the demons wanted to go into the pigs was because if they just throw the pigs off a cliff, that's going to financially ruin the people in the town who own those pigs, and then that'll rile up the people, and then they'll want to get rid of Jesus. That's just my speculation. <laughs> so, because that is what happened. Like, uh, the whole herd of pigs dying, that was a big deal, because in ancient Israel, like, their economy was largely based on a fixed piece of land. I mean, they didn't... Um, so if you had land or animals, you were really rich, like, they didn't have stock portfolios or capital gains or just, like, that kind of wealth in that society. So, like, if you had, like, animals, like, that was a big deal. And if they jumped off a cliff and died, you were financially ruined. Which would go a long ways towards explaining why, even though Jesus had miraculously delivered the two men who were wreaking havoc on this town for seemingly a long period of time, 
townspeople clearly did not care one bit about that. They just straight up shot blocked Jesus. Get out of here. Oh, it looks like you have supreme authority over the spiritual realm, which we've never seen anybody else do ever. I'm not interested at all. Get out of here. Verse 34 says, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Their money and the false sense of security that it gave them, that was their true treasure. The true treasure wasn't Jesus. They weren't just interested in that. So here's the deal. When Jesus takes away your true treasure, then you're forced into a decision. You're either going to crown him or you're going to tell him to leave. So can you imagine pleading with Jesus to get out of your town or to get out of your life? I mean, maybe we think we're too sophisticated to do something like that, but uh, functionally that's what we do when we hold back parts of our life from Jesus. So, so imagine that there is um, this big table right in front of you, this really big table, and, and your whole life is just personified, like just everything in your life is just on that table. So your family, your relationships, your sex life, just everything, like every nook and cranny of desire and ambition of just like for your entire life is just on that table right there. That'd be a pretty big table. So when Jesus looks at that table and his, in his good and infinitely wise authority, he takes a few things off the table. Just like he did with the townspeople. Would you still want to follow him? Or would you just shot block him like the townspeople and plead with him to leave? Jesus isn't just worthy to have complete authority over our lives. He's trustworthy enough to have that authority. So let's talk about the third response to his authority, which I would call the goal and not the means. So the crowds in Scripture, um, crowds typically don't have a great reputation throughout the Bible. So whenever there's crowds, usually they're fickle, they're stubborn, they're just like, there's the, um, yeah, um, they just are. <laughs> but the crowd in verse 8, um, just with the paralytic man and everything, um, they seem to have actually gotten a, a lot right in this situation. Like, this is one of the good crowds in Scripture. So they saw how the paralyzed man was healed after Jesus forgave his sins. And verse 8 says the crowd was filled with awe and they praised God. So that's not exactly a robust definition or description of what the crowd was thinking and feeling at that moment, but let's just take that at face value. So being filled with awe, like that sounds like a good thing. But more importantly, it says they praised God. The focus of their awe and praise was directed towards God. It was a God-centered response to seeing his authority. 
So this is something that Brandon talked about. He talks about it off and on, but um, I think he mentioned it like a couple weeks ago more specifically in a sermon about like on the Sermon on the Mount. But I just wanted to, just wanted to double down on that a little bit here. Um, having a God-centered response to his authority is all about seeing God as the goal and not just the means to some other goal that you have. Having a God-centered response his authority is all about seeing God as the goal and not just the means to some other goal. So, for example, if someone says, I'm just throwing out a couple examples here. So, like, so if someone says, I really want to know God's will for my life and I want to find God's will and I want to, like, just find out what he wants for my life with that. I mean... I mean, the optics of that are fine. You know, the optics of that are fine. But I suppose the better question to ask in that kind of situation is that, like, do you want to know God's will because you've surrendered to him and you desperately want him to be the king of your life? And, like, is that where that's coming from? Or, do you, or is it just, like, you just kind of want God to be this religious travel guide for you so that you can reach your goals of personal and professional development and you can just be this better person, better version of yourself. Like, is God the goal or is he just the means to some other goal that you have? So another common example, um, like when someone says, like, I really want God to help me be a better parent and a better spouse and like, Again, like, the optics of that are fine, you know? Like, I'm pro-parenting. I'm pro-marriage. I'm running a marriage seminar, if you want to come, like, in April. And I think the gospel, like, I think the gospel speaks into those things with, you know, parenting and marriage for sure. But, but again, like, is God the goal? Or is he just the means to some other goal that you have? Like, of just being a better parent or a better spouse? I mean, what if your kids experience suffering and your spouse leaves you? Like, are you still going to worship God? Is he still the goal? You know, um, so like when we were uh, back in 2000, we started, we moved here in 2016 to start this church. Um, But so in 2015, um, we had to go through these series of um, interviews and assessments with our denomination just because they want to make sure you're not a wing nut or um, you have a critical level of maturity. We totally fooled them, by the way. So, so we had these assessments, um, you know, so it was, uh, it was Becky and I um, were in front of this assessment team, and they were asking us questions. And, um, you know, and I'm friends with the guys who are doing the assessment and everything. So, I mean, these weren't, like, just some guys who were trying to nail us to the wall. So, anyway, so like, one of the guys, names, uh, his name is Nate. So he was asking us the question of, like, well, you know, because one of the things that we were expressing was, like, you know, um, one of the things that we're concerned about with um, moving to Dubuque was just the, like the transition for our kids and like how are they going to do and like I don't just, you know we're just kind of worried about that but we're just really trusting God that like He's going to just work through that situation and work in them um, and uh, so Nate um, just in a really nice way I mean he's my friend you know he was he just was like so what happens if they don't transition well. What happens if they, like, just don't do well? You know, where are you going to be at spiritually? You know, and 
I think Becky, I don't know what we said. We're just kind of like, well, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, truth be told, like there was like um, one of our three kids like um, transitioned not as well as the other two. And, and, you know, and basically what Nate was saying was that like, you know, like basically what he was, functionally what he was trying to say was like, okay, well, is in this what you're describing? Like, is God the goal here? Was he just the means to some other goal that you have? So it's good to trust God, like, in that, okay, but, like, is he the goal, or is he just the means to some other goal that you have? You know, and, like, when one of our kids didn't transition as well, I mean, like, I mean, we did kind of go spiritually sideways in terms, terms of, like, trusting God and everything like that. Um, and it was, like, a really good learning experience for Becky and I just to be like, okay, like, um, like he's the goal. Like, God is the goal, and we can't just use him as, like, as a means to some other goal that we have. Like, it was, yeah, he is the goal. And he's worthy and trustworthy to be the goal and to have all authority in our lives. So when we take communion at River City, it's like, that's a symbolic way of responding to Jesus and proclaiming that, like, he is the goal of our life. It's not just the means to some other goal that we have. Like he's, the, like, he's the goal. So the bread represents his body. The drink represents his blood. And those things were broken and shed for you. He has all the authority, and that's why he was powerful enough to live the life that we were supposed to live. And he died the death that we were supposed to die. That's why communion is a symbolic way of remembering him and responding to him who has all authority, and that's why we put ourselves under him. So I just encourage you to like pray before you take communion. like Talk to him authentically, and just don't make it a religious exercise like, um, or anything like that, or going through the motions. Like, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, I just encourage you to hold off on taking communion for now, but if you're ready to respond to him as your forgiver and your leader, and you want him to be your goal, and not just the means to some other goal, just like then go take communion, go surrender to him, talk to him about that. So there's two communion stations in the back. You take the bread, you dip it in the, in the juice, and then you take communion that way and you remember him. So the worship team is going to be playing three songs. Like any time during those three songs, you can come up, you can go up on your own and take communion whenever you're ready. Let's pray. So God, we're thankful that... Um, we're thankful that you're not a travel guide. We're thankful that you have all authority. We're thankful that, like, you're the goal. And, like, um, we confess to you that, like, um, the times that, um, that you aren't the goal, um, we're just really thankful that not only do you have the authority to forgive sins, we're thankful that, like, that Jesus, like, stood in our place and, like, yeah, the Father was always the goal, ultimately the goal for Jesus. And like you're pleased with us because we put our faith in Jesus. Yeah, thanks for, I was thankful that like your authority is good news and just like that we can trust you and we love you. Yeah, amen.